we're gonna we're gonna wrap up uh, our time walking through the storyline of Scripture by kind of going from really covering the New Testament today from uh, the Gospels through uh, through Revelation. Uh, we're gonna try to hit the high points, and not get too far in the weeds, uh, but leave room for questions if you have uh, questions about how the world's gonna end. Um, and uh, my my current prediction um, is that we're we're like looking at June second, two thousand twenty-seven is most likely what. Um, uh, it's it's amazing how many people I don't I, I've looked this up before, but the number of people who have done um, predictions and uh, one guy in particular I'm forgetting his name now is like really well known for making a prediction and the time came it didn't happen he was like well it was a spiritual uh, return and the Lord's actually told me he's updated the date it's now going to be <laughs> this time so um, but. If you're serious enough, you know, as it leads up to the date, I'm sure you're going to get some interest. You know, it's like, is it going to happen? Is this it? You know, um, and so uh, I don't know if you recall uh, or some of you weren't born, but uh, Y2K, the experience of waiting for, um, you know, to turn to, to the year 2000 and wondering if, like, maybe that's it. You know, maybe the world's going to end as the computers all don't roll over and we have all these problems and here we are. Same so, thing as it, yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. more of a spiritual awakening for computers now yeah. that all the Gen Z yeah, kids are obsessed right. with them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's uh, that's at the end. We'll get to that, but um, but I am uh, excited to kind of bring all of this together. <clears throat> Last week, uh, we tried to we tried to show how we go from from creation in Genesis 1 through 2 to the fall in Genesis 3, and then we actually see redemption begin in Genesis 3.15, the promise that God is going to bring about an offspring from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent while the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman. And it's that promise of an offspring that's going to come and deliver us that really uh, sets up the rest of the Bible because we're, we're looking and wondering who is uh, this promised offspring and in God's plan of redemption, it's a, a, re- a covenant plan of redemption that we see play out starting with Abraham. Um, and so while Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of the gospel, uh, it, it begins to take more and more shape as we get to Genesis 12 and God calls Abraham and makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. And then we see um, even in making a covenant with Abraham, he tells Israel what's going tells Abraham what's going to happen they're going to go into Egypt for 400 years they're going to be enslaved God's going to bring them out uh, our ladies know about that uh, from the book of Exodus um, and and God does redeem and that's the word that's used he redeems them by his mighty and outstretched arm uh, and brings them out of Egypt and makes a covenant with them at Sinai which is called the Mosaic covenant um, and the Mosaic covenant God says when he brings Israel out uh, his people out and going to bring them into the promised land. Uh, he, he basically says that they're going to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. They're going to be uh, the language that we use to showcase people. God makes the Mosaic covenant with them so that they could show the, the world what it looked like to be in right relationship with the one true and living God. Um, and, and the covenant, the Mosaic covenant is conditioned upon obedience. If they obey, there's blessings. If they disobey, there are curses. Um, and even in Deuteronomy we, we see after laying out the curses in, in Deuteronomy 26, 27, 28, that area, uh, we see that God says at the end of the day what you need to obey the law is a circumcised heart. Even though the physical sign of, of the Mosaic Covenant is circumcision, what you really need is the heart to be circumcised, which really sets us up for the New Covenant uh, in Jeremiah 31, which says this New Covenant is not like the Old Covenant. Uh, because God's going to take away your your hard heart, your your heart of stone, and give you a new heart, put His Spirit within you, and He's going to uh, enable you to obey uh, His commands. And so um, we see that the Mosaic Covenant was meant to help Israel be a showcase people, to show um, what it meant to be in relationship with God as they lived in the land um, and, uh, and and walked in obedience to God. Uh, but the Mosaic Covenant isn't the end of the um, of the covenants, the Davidic covenant, um, comes in Second Samuel seven, and and God uh, says to David, "I'm going to make your 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 offspring, your name, um, and your kingdom great. It's going to be a kingdom that'll never end, and your offspring is going to rule forever." Um, and there's this like hint in which it's both 
talking about Solomon because it says that when your son sins, he'll be corrected and uh, etc. But then there's also this further forward sense in which it's saying that God is going to um, God is going to um, establish this kingdom forever. You know, the only way you have a kingdom that lasts forever is if you have an unbroken succession of offspring or you have a king who never dies. Um, and, and that's ultimately what we have in Jesus. And as Jesus comes, when he shows up, we see that the language that Jesus uses in the Gospels is the language of kingdom, that he is the king and that the kingdom has arrived. Um, and so if redemption was initiated in the Old Testament with Israel, starting with Abraham and uh, including the Mosaic Covenant and taking shape in the Davidic Covenant and, and ultimately the New Covenant, which was while Israel was in exile, remember the, the story, they sin, they disobey, God sends them into exile first. He sends the, the uh, northern kingdom into exile to Assyria, then the southern kingdom into exile to Babylon. The Persians send them back. But it's in that time where Jeremiah says, keep trusting the Lord. God is going. God hasn't forgotten his people. He's going to bring you back, um, and he's going to make a new covenant with you. And so Jesus shows up in what we call Act 4, um, pulling again from the book, the drama of Scripture, uh, is called Redemption Accomplished because it's the arrival of, of the king, and so the gospels tell us the story of Jesus's life, ministry, birth, ministry, uh, and his death and his resurrection. Um, and in that, they reveal the kingdom of God. Um, and, and in fact, if you go to Mark chapter one, uh, fourteen, most likely the gospel of Mark um, is written first, um, and Matthew and Luke. Um, seem to have knowledge of Mark and use Mark in the uh, writing of their Gospels. Uh, John, most people would say Mark's probably written anywhere from an early date of like 45 AD upwards to somewhere between 45 and the late 50s where Matthew and Luke are seen most believe would be written in the early 60s uh, AD. Um, and then the Gospel of John is written last and uh, it's written somewhere around 90. Uh, A.D. by the Apostle uh, John, who lives longer than all of the other uh, apostles, uh, all of the other original disciples, uh, ultimately is exiled onto Patmos, um, and is there that he writes the book of Revelation. Um, and so um, Mark begins in Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that's the, this is the, um, the introduction of the good news about Jesus, who is the Messiah, Christ is in his last name, that's actually a title. That means Messiah, anointed one, um, and son of God, um, also reflecting his, uh, his divine nature. But when he shows up and begins his ministry, Mark cuts to the chase. You know, the, the most frequent word used in the Gospel of Mark is immediately. Uh, some, you know, Jesus is going about and immediately he does this. And Jesus is, you know, um, uh, on the way and immediately he stops and he teaches, you know, the disciples. And so it's a word that's used often. Um, and in fact, you can. I'm just looking at verse 21, verse 29. They all have, uh, even verse 12, uh, the Spirit immediately drove them into the wilderness. And so it's, a, it's very action-packed, and it doesn't include the information about his birth, but it begins with his, the beginning of his ministry uh, with, with Jesus' baptism and the ministry of John the Baptist. But it says in verse 14, when he began his ministry, after John was arrested, speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus is saying, literally, the kingdom of God has come, which is another way of saying that the king has arrived, because for the kingdom of God to come, the king has to come. And so when we think about the kingdom of God, it's not a space spatial uh, reality uh, yet, as it's spoken of here in the gospel, will be, as it says in Revelation, but it's a, it's a relational reality, uh, and it has to do with the arrival uh, of Jesus. And so um, he, he enters in uh, and reveals the kingdom of God and his teaching, um, and, uh, and then uh, begins uh, his ministry to, um, uh, through, through his teaching, and then ultimately it's through his death on the cross uh, that he's going to pay the price for our sins. Uh, he's going to uh, conquer Satan, sin, and death um, uh, through the resurrection. Um, and, and the kingdom of God 
arrives in his coming and, and is revealed in his ministry and his death and resurrection, but it's a it's a partial arrival because it's not fully yet here. So while Jesus can both say the kingdom of God is at hand, he also will say in Acts chapter 1, if you flip over there before he ascends to the disciples, they say, they ask him, when they had come together after he, before he ascends, after he's resurrected, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons the Father is fixed, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's this sense in which the kingdom of God hasn't fully arrived. Um, and yet there's a, another real sense in which it has been inaugurated in Jesus' uh, birth, uh, ministry, death, and resurrection. And so, um, so we have this reality that um, that begins to take shape in the Gospels, that the King has arrived, that redemption is going to be accomplished ultimately through Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, the authors say, you can see that quote there um, on the first page, we cannot grasp the meaning of the story of Jesus until um, we're able to see it as, in fact, the climactic episode of the great story of the Bible, the chronicle of God's work in human history, uh, ultimately the fulfillment of all of the promises given to Israel find their, their, at least their initial fulfillment or their final fulfillment in the end in Jesus. And so um, the, the other thing um, I'll just say about the, about the Gospels, uh, what's amazing about the Gospels, you have four different accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, two accounts of his birth in Matthew and Matthew. Um, and John even goes further back than his birth, right? Uh, speaking of his eternal um, pre-existence um, and they're not they're not all uh, copied of one another they're not all mirrors of one another and yet they they all are consistent with one another um, and and they give us this picture both of what Jesus said as well as uh, how what he said was understood and received by his disciples and so you have four portraits of who Jesus is uh, that are unique and different and yet consistent and speak uh, to the truth um, of, of who Jesus is. And so, um, real quick, let's kind of go through in the Gospels we see in relation to Jesus' life um, that he makes known the kingdom of God and his life. As I mentioned, uh, there's kind of this uh, present, uh, this already and not yet dynamic. Um, if you go to um, Mark uh, chapter, let's see. Mark chapter 4, you'll see, uh, you can just kind of note this, we won't go through them all, but um, Jesus in, in Mark 4 teaches through using a number of parables about the kingdom of God. He talks about how the kingdom of God is like a sower um, who sows seed in the field and there are different soils and those soils represent hearts and responses to the gospel and talks about how the kingdom of God is like a uh, mustard seed that starts small and grows large and provides shade to others. And elsewhere, he'll talk about how the kingdom of God, um, there's this picture of uh, a field and there's wheat and there's uh, weeds in the field and they both grow up and at the end they're sorted out. And, and so there's all these pictures that the kingdom doesn't come at once, so that it comes about through trusting in and believing the words of Jesus, the message of the gospel, and that there is a final judgment in the future when the kingdom of God will be fully established. Um, and, and it's then that the full revelation of the kingdom uh, begins to, to take shape. And uh, though we enter into the kingdom by faith and trusting in and responding to the, the message of the gospel like the sower, parable of the sower shows, uh, we will fully enter in to the kingdom of God when, when Jesus uh, returns. And if you go uh, to other places like, uh, for example, Matthew uh, 23, uh, which is known as the Olivet Discourse at the end of Jesus's, like before he goes to the cross, uh, he gives instruction about the, the signs of the end of the age, about the kingdom of God that's going uh, to come, and, um, and, and kind of shows us how at the end there's going to be both judgment and, um, and a full experience of, of, of the kingdom of God. And, and, and particularly the, the message of the gospel in the in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is is often summarized as the gospel of the kingdom. If you look at 
Matthew 24, verse 13 or 14, Jesus says that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Um, and so what's interesting as you get to Paul's letters and the rest of the New Testament, the language of kingdom is still present, but it's not as um, prominent. Uh, it's much more focused on, on Jesus um, and the rule and reign that Jesus uh, takes up in our lives as we as we believe and trust in Him, as we put our faith in Him and how we're justified and made right. And, and, and so the language shifts in terms of the emphasis isn't on kingdom in the, in the letters um, as it is in the Gospels, but you can, you can clearly see um, that those two are there just to, to kind of jump ahead a little bit. If you go to Colossians um, chapter 1, just to kind of demonstrate how it's still present but not as dominant of a theme. In Colossians 1.13 it says that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here we see kingdom, redemption, all in Jesus. That's, the, that's kind of the, the holistic picture that we see throughout the scriptures. Um, and, and it's particularly the death and resurrection of Christ in the Gospels that, that get picked up on in the letters as being of central and, uh, and of, of, of first importance, ultimately, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so while he makes known the kingdom of God in his life and his teaching, in his death, Jesus secures the victory of the kingdom of God. And they say that the, the cross represents the climactic victory of the kingdom of God. God's rule was disrupted by human rebellion and all that came with it. Demonic power, sickness, suffering, pain, death, every kind of evil. The root of all opposition to God's rule is human rebellion, our sin. And that could be destroyed only at the cross as Jesus bore the guilt and the sin of the world. Um, and so uh, the cross is central in securing the victory of the kingdom of God. Um, and the resurrection inaugurates the kingdom of God uh, in that uh, it, it, it is this kind of language of down payment or um, uh, an assurance of what's to come for us. Uh, the language that's used of Jesus' resurrection in Colossians 1.18 is that he's the firstborn from the dead, meaning that his resurrection from the dead is an assurance of more to follow. Um, he is the first fruits of a future resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15.20 says. Um, and he is the pioneer of our salvation. He's gone before us, securing our salvation that we would follow in his trail. So his resurrection is inaugurating the kingdom, leading us into the age to come, and demonstrating the path in which we're to follow, that the way to eternal life is through Jesus. And we enter the kingdom, we enter the gate, we enter the door. He is that, the door, the gate, as John says. So we enter through him. And while we have a relationship with him now, we have an, a true experience of the kingdom of God bursting into the present in our lives and in the church. Um, but it's a foretaste of that, uh, of what's to come. And obviously our present foretaste of that is an imperfect foretaste, but it nonetheless points us uh, to the age to come. Um, and then finally, before his ascension, Jesus is going to commission his disciples and he's going to commission them uh, to, bear, to bear witness to his death and resurrection. Um, and if you look in all the Gospels, you have some type of commissioning. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is known as the Great Commission. Um, and uh, it tells us as Jesus is about to be resurrected, he gathers disciples and he says to them, he, he gives them a command and he sandwiches it between two realities. And those two realities is that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And behold, I am with you always. So ultimate authority and, uh, and forever presence uh, with us. And then the command is make disciples. Uh, the, the other, what look like verbs, uh, are describing how we make disciples. We make disciples as we go. There's an implication of going, moving towards others, both in terms of intentionality in our daily life and ultimately... Uh, to the nations. Um, there's a call to be baptized as the first step of obedience to God, uh, which we'll celebrate today, uh, of professing faith in Christ, being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the ongoing reality of the Christian life, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, um, and, and knowing that he's with us. Mark ends in somewhat of a 
interesting way, Jesus says this gospel must be proclaimed uh, to the ends of the earth. Um, and, uh, and then it says to us that uh, there's this question about the ending of the gospel of Mark. There's a short ending that ends in verse 8 and then a longer ending that goes uh, down through verse 20. But in the longer ending, we have this statement in verse 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Um, and so uh, the, the longer ending of textual criticism, that's a, a bigger discussion, but, but basically we, the way we have the Bible today um, is, I'm going to push pause on this because I want to come back to it. I want to finish talking about the Great Commission, but there's a good, good statement here to make that we'll come back to. The other Great Commission, Luke 24, Jesus is resurrected. Um, he's teaching the disciples on the road to Emmaus um, and um, great rendition if you ask our kids um, about uh, how this uh, whole thing went down. Uh, I think Nate was uh, the producer um, of, uh, of that. So um, I don't want to hand out any Oscars uh, today or be you know, in any way, shape, or form assaulted by anyone. So I won't, I won't do that. But um, our kids the other day uh, reenacted the story on the road to Emmaus. And um, I was laughing. Uh, Amelia... I think Amelia was Amelia Jesus in, in the yeah she had she was disguised she had sunglasses on and anyways it was just really funny but um, it's somewhat of a funny story you can only imagine how Jesus is they don't was recognize uh, what's that Noah was the table yeah uh, that's right important part yeah. <laughs> um, but after after teaching them from the scriptures how they're about him uh, it says in verse verse twenty seven. Uh, down in verse 34, he says, These are the words that I spoke to you, uh, how all these things are written about me, the law, the prophets, Moses, the Psalms. That's basically a summation of the whole Old Testament. He opens their mind to understand the scriptures. And then he says that verse uh, 46, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending you the promise, basically, out of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 1.8, we see uh, the summation of this as Jesus, before he ascends, he says that to the disciples and to extension us, we are his witnesses. There's a unique sense in which the early disciples were witnesses literally of his resurrection, eyewitnesses of it, confirming that it happened. Uh, we bear witness to what they have recorded, that, um, that, that we bear witness that Jesus um, is the Savior, um, and, and we do that starting in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Um, and so um, we have these commissioning texts which really define the mission of the church and, and who we are as believers, what we're called to as believers in terms of the, the ultimate sense. We all have a job. There's all kinds of various things we do in our life. But we have this ultimate sense in which God desires to use us to make him known among the nations. Um, and uh, and so this is Jesus uh, comes, uh, reveals the kingdom, uh, inaugurates the kingdom through his death and resurrection, and then sends his disciples. Um, any, any questions just about kind of the content of the Gospels and how it relates to redemption being accomplished um, uh, through Jesus' death and resurrection uh, and, and how that um, brings about uh, the kingdom of God and, and kind of establishes the mission of the church? You mentioned in each gospel there is some commissioning. Where would you point in John? Oh, John uh, 20. I'm sorry. I just kind of skipped John. Um, John 20, 21. Some might say John 17, 18. Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Um, but in John 20, um, 21, Jesus said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Um, and and then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness, it is uh, withheld. Uh, and kind of that ties in with verse 30, which um, we are sent to bear the message that this book tells us, which is um, that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John uses particularly the language of sending, where Matthew and Luke make the commission explicit. Mark has that statement, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Acts 1-8, you're my witnesses. You know? So Matthew and Luke probably are the most explicit as to what is involved in that commission. John is that we are sent. 
and, and kind of emphasizes that aspect of it. One of the things I'll just say about the longer ending in Mark, and there's the longer ending in Mark, and then in John 8, the story of the, the woman caught in a, the act of adultery. Um, basically, the way we get our Bible um, is, it's not like the game telephone, right? Like, I think sometimes we have this vision of, like, somebody said, the, the early, Jesus said it, the disciples heard it, and then they said it to other people and said it to other people, and somewhere along the way, somebody wrote it down, and then somebody else may have came along a little later, and they tweaked it and changed it, and, and then, um, you know, and then sometimes people are like, well, the Bible has been translated so many times that it can't be accurate. Um, and, and the assumption is that the base of our translation is changing every time we do a new translation. But that's not the case. We're using the same manuscripts, the original languages in Greek and Hebrew and, and Aramaic in a few spots in the Old Testament. Um, we're using those, those original manuscripts, some of which we have whole Old Testament manuscripts, some of which we have... Uh, whole New Testament manuscripts, but then we have just literally thousands of portions of the Old Testament, portions of the New Testament. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were found in the 1940s, and they basically uh, show, they, get, they took us a thousand years further back than we previously had, um, and they demonstrated to us that from before we found them, we had, you know, uh, up to, um, say, um, the date, the date of some of the manuscripts before we found them. Um, I don't know the, the exact date, but I know that the Dead Sea Scrolls take us a thousand years further back. So I'll look this up uh, for you to, to confirm the date. And basically what we find is before the Dead Sea Scrolls are found, and once we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have, we have continuity between what we have. We don't have a changing uh, body of text. Um, and where there are changes, they're explained often by the process of transmission by the scribes. Um, uh, and, and even there are times when you can tell the scribes struggle with something that the text says, and they, they will make a note in the margins uh, in, their, in their process. But the, the, the transmission process of the Old Testament, the New Testament manuscripts, was not a laissez-faire, like, you know, uh, I'm just going to write this. They either were sitting looking and copying or in large groups later on in time in monasteries that somebody would be reading they would be writing and when they made mistakes they crumbled it up and they threw it away. Um, the process was very arduous and, and not for the faint of heart. When I was in college I decided I was going to try to copy a version of the Bible just from English to English. Um, I think I made it to like Leviticus um, and, uh, and, and gave up um, along the way. And, and you can, it's easy to make mistakes as you look from, you know, especially if you're in a hurry, you're looking and you miss a line or you miss a word. Um, and so what's amazing about um, the, the, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts is we have so many and we have them all uh, coded and like put together in something called an apparatus. And when you get a Greek or a Hebrew Bible, when you're reading, literally, if there's any any type of difference um, between the manuscript, maybe maybe one person spells just to use a modern example. Maybe one transcript one transcript spells Michael M I C H E A L, um, but then another manuscript spells it M I C H A E L. Well, we have the the manuscripts coded, dated, uh, the origin of where they're from, uh, Western tradition, Byzantine tradition. Alexandrian tradition, uh, speaking of places uh, where many of these manuscripts are found, and we can say, okay, we know that these manuscripts from the Alexandrian tradition are the oldest and often the most consistent amongst themselves. So this is the this manuscript most likely is the uh, the most uh, the the earliest and the most accurate. But we make a footnote that says, well, in these in this in this manuscript, this one manuscript from the fifth century, it spells Michael M I C H E A L. So you do with that what you decide. Do we all like 98% spell it A-E-L? And one of these, one manuscript over here spells it E-A-L. Most, most likely the scribe made a mistake on that, you know, and the most accurate uh, uh, word is A-E-L. You know, like so, but we have all of that for you to look at and go, okay, this manuscript says this, this manuscript says this. Um, and in Mark and in John, they're the largest chunks that we have. And many, many scholars will say they are consistent. They come from a little bit of a later 
manuscript. If you look at Mark, at the end of Mark, your Bible will make this note for you. If you notice, mine does it right at the end. Uh, after verse 8, either in a footnote or mine actually does it like there's a break in the text. You can see um, there's this little statement that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And then it, it takes you down uh, to a number 9 and it says, some manuscripts in the book with 16, 8. Others include verses 19 through 20 immediately after verse 8. It's an ironic use of immediately there. A few for the Gospel of Mark. A few manuscripts insert additional material after verse 14. One Latin manuscript adds after verse 8 the following, but they reported briefly to Peter and those with him and that all had been told, and after this, Jesus sent them out uh, by means of them from the east to west, um, sacred and perishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Other manuscripts include the same wording after verse 8 and then continue through verses 19 to 20. So, the, my point in all of this is is to say, like, we have an abundance of material um, that helps us to have confidence that what we're saying is accurate. And, and and in the cases where there is a question as to what is in there, what should be in there, it's not like there's a manuscript out there that says Jesus is not God and all of his disciples just made that up to make you guys all feel better. And then there's another manuscript that's like, no, Jesus is God. Um, it's not like there's any conflict of the, the theology that's so revealed that changes anything. Um, the question is, did, you know, whether it's the spelling of a name or what would we do if Mark ended with, and they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling and with astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Well, it's pretty, I mean, I could get that. Like, it would be pretty mind-boggling and it's consistent with what the disciples do in the other Gospels, because what do they do in the other Gospels? They're scared to death and lock themselves in a room. You know, so it's like, it, it, it actually, there's a sense of which I think verses 9, 9 through 20 are consistent with what we see in the rest of the Scriptures. Um, but, and so that's why they often are included here, but they make this point to say, well, even if it ended in verse 8, it doesn't change anything that's happened. Jesus really died and he really rose from the dead. Um, and, and it's consistent with everything else uh, that we see in uh, in the other Gospels. And so it's just a word about textual um, transmission and manuscripts and all of it to say we have an embarrassment of riches of the Hebrew and the Greek manuscripts that give us confidence that when you pick up an English trans translation, the NIV, the ESV, the CSB, the New King James, um, ironically, there's a group of people that are King James only and the King James only, the King James translation was only, only used three main manuscripts, like big manuscripts that covered the entirety of the Old and New Testament. Um, and so it's actually the least, has the least backing uh, manuscript wise of any of the, uh, any of the other, um, any of the other English translations. And so, uh, but every translation is getting together scholars, Greek and Hebrew scholars, and they're translating from the original language into our modern language. And different translations have different like philosophies. The NIV aims at readability, whereas the ESV is trying to be readable, but it also tries to really follow some of the word ordering. It's a little bit more wooden in the translation. And of course, any language from one language to another, it's never quite exactly right. You know, subject, verb, you know, object kind of placement changes and, and all of that. And so sometimes when you read a translation that's more wooden, like the New King James or uh, the NASB. It's it's following, trying to follow the word wording sometimes to the point of you're like, not sure, not sure I understand, you know. Whereas when you read in the NIV, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Um, the one caveat is something like the message. Um, it, it would be like me looking at my English Bible and trying to paraphrase it to make it more understandable to people. It's not a translation. It's not claiming to be a translation. Eugene Peterson wasn't trying to fool anybody. He was just trying to help people better understand the Bible. It's like a commentary of sorts in translation or in paraphrase uh, that you have in the Bible. So the, the message isn't a translation of the Greek and Hebrew. It's a paraphrase of the English by one, one author helpful, but just kind of keep that in mind. You know, sometimes I'll reference it because it 
it says something in a really powerful way or like in a way you're like oh that gets at what I think it's saying you know and other times I'm like ah you know I don't know that I'd say it that way you know but it's a helpful helpful resource in that regard so any questions about that some people love that topic some people have questions about that um, I just covering you know 30,000 level you know, overview of it, but Elliot do you understand man yeah All right, so Act 5 um, is the mission of the church. Uh, post uh, Jesus' uh, death and resurrection and ascension, um, his commission of the disciples, the mission of the church is what takes up the life and mission of the church, really, is what takes up the remainder of the New Testament. And so we are caught in between Jesus' first advent and his second advent, his first coming and his second coming. We're kind of living in between the times so to speak, as his people. Um, and the mission of the church is to continue the mission of Christ that he entrusted to us and gave us the spirit to empower us. Some of this we'll talk about today as we wrap up John 17. Um, and that we, uh, we carry on the mission that he began. And we kind of have two scenes that you can break this down with. One is from Jerusalem to Rome. And this kind of picks up on Acts 1-8 uh, that I mentioned earlier. It gives us this geographical direction and expansion of the gospel that uh, you will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Um, and so Acts, it, you could use Acts 1-8 as, uh, as a structure and outline for the rest of the, of the book of Acts. It traces how the apostles initially in Jerusalem, starting at Pentecost, preach the gospel, literally thousands come to know Christ, the churches form, Acts 2.42, the church gathers together, they're breaking the bread, they're hearing the apostles teach, they're um, sharing, you know, fellowship house to house, praying together, um, all of this ministry is taking place in Jerusalem, but then through persecution, God uses the persecution of Stephen um, and, and ultimately abuses the persecution of Stephen to bring Paul to his faith in Christ and to scatter the, the church, although the apostles stay in Jerusalem, it says that many unnamed Christians spread out into Judea and Samaria. Uh, and we see uh, how there is this move from the Jews and, and God-fearing uh, Jewish proselytes who first received the gospel to um, ultimately uh, the Samaritans with the ministry of Philip uh, in Acts 8 and then Acts 10. Uh, through Cornelius, Peter is sent to him to take the gospel to a Gentile. And the gospel is moving, just like it says, from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And then uh, the book of Acts ends with, with Paul uh, in Rome desiring to head to Spain, uh, to take the gospel to Spain. Basically, the book of Romans is written uh, to explain Paul's theology to the church at Rome so that they'll support him and send him to Spain to take the gospel to Spain. That's, that's in essence what the book of, of Romans is, a mission document uh, explaining, uh, explaining the gospel and, uh, and Paul's desire to take the gospel to the nations, uh, which Spain would be the end of the known world in Paul's uh, purview. Um, the New Testament letters develop what, what new life in Christ looks like for believers, what life in the church looks like, as well as how the mission is to be carried on. And I think Jesus' words in John 17 that we looked at last week are a good reminder that the mission of the church is both holiness uh, or our calling as a church is both holiness and mission. And when you read the letters, it's, it's surprising how much it puts emphasis on holiness. Um, a lot of the letters are calling God's people to walk in obedience to him, to walk in holiness. Um, and then those who are walking in holiness are called to make Christ known, not only to, to know him and to walk in obedience to him, but to make him known uh, to others. And so the New Testament letters develop this, and the the letters, so you kind of know how the Bible is put together. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the most Old Testament rich book, and so it often is given first because it connects with the Old Testament, and then Mark, Luke, uh, John, then Acts. And then from longest to shortest, it takes the books of Paul. Um, and and you, you go from Romans all the way down to Philemon. Um, and, then, and then you see uh, the books. Um, Is it perfectly ordered that way? I never realized that. Yeah. 
Like right general, what's called the general epistles uh, are what follow with James and Peter and John's letters and, um, and Jude um, and then ultimately takes us to Revelation which was written by the Apostle Apostle John um, and so um, the uh, the ending of Acts though um, is really is really what sets up where we are today um, it kind of ends with this uh, open ending, so to speak. Uh, if you go to Acts 28. there in Rome at the very end um, talking about the gospel going to the Jews uh, first and then to the Gentiles verse 30 he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance um, and so uh, the authors of the book of drama scripture say the ending of Acts is truly an opening to the continuing life of the Messianic people and it continues to as it continues to preach the kingdom and teach things concerning Jesus, both boldly and without uh, hindrance. And so Jesus, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, it says that, uh, Luke says that it's the Gospel is the story of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Acts 1, 1 says that's what Luke is. And then the book of Acts is the story of how Jesus' disciples continued that work. Um, and it's the authors say it's this story that we have a part, we're invited into to become a part of the story, to follow Jesus, continue uh, the kingdom mission in the steps of his earliest followers. And so uh, there's a church planning network called Acts 29 that's built upon this idea. And there's only 28 chapters in Acts, uh, but it begs for a continuation of the mission of the church, uh, which is uh, what Acts 29 is all about. And so we are sent into the world and we have a place in the mission and the way we have a place in the mission is we look backwards at the kingdom mission of Jesus that is the climax and the fulfillment of Israel's story in the Old Testament. Um, and then we also uh, look ahead uh, to what's promised to us, the kingdom that's to come. And, and we kind of live in between these two worlds with this bearing witness to what Jesus has done, but living with the hope of what he's going to do. That's why we endure suffering and persecution, while we uh, seek to walk in obedience to him empowered by what Christ did in his first coming, uh, waiting on and hoping in what Christ will do in his second coming. Um, and so uh, the mission of the church uh, is carried out starting at Acts through the remainder of the letters, and it's both a message and calling to holiness and a calling to, to mission, uh, to live like Jesus and to make Jesus known. Um, and, and in that, when you see the mission of believers, I think one, one kind of word here to encourage us when we think about what this means to us, Sometimes it's easy for us to think so individualistically about these things. Um, but when you look at the New Testament, the New Testament is the picture of the mission of the church. Yes, every individual has a responsibility in it, but the church plays a vital and central role in our calling and our uh, and, and what we're to be about in between the times, between Jesus' first coming and the second coming. The church is the centerpiece of God's plan of continuing the work of redemption. Um, and so we just have that central piece that we find our individual role in, uh, in, in, the, in part as we're uh, connected to the, the broader body uh, of, of a local church and of the church throughout, uh, throughout the ages. And so um, any, any, any thoughts on that, just the mission of the church, how um, that's shaped by the book of Acts and the New Testament letters and kind of our our place today, um, so to speak, continue that mission. Why do you think why do you think it's important for us as we think about our mission today, that idea of looking backwards to remember what Jesus has done, um, as well as looking forward 
um, and to the New Testament and our ultimate hope uh, as we think about our mission today. We think about what our mission is. Why, why is it important that we situate ourselves in between Christ's first coming and his second coming? What, what difference does that make? It definitely creates an urgency, and I think there was like some conviction reading this of like Christ's intention for our lives. Yeah, because I mean it's easy to look at like Acts, for instance, and you know that you know Christ had met a lot of people and influenced a lot of people, yeah. but there were still like tons and tons and tons of people that had never heard of him, didn't know him at all. And it's easy to look at that and be like, oh yeah, like people didn't know then, but they they pretty much know now. Yeah. But they don't. Yeah. They, they really don't. Um, I think more people are at least aware of Christianity probably than they were then. Um, but a lot of people don't have any relationship with, with Christ. Yeah. And now, now we have even more undoing sometimes. You know, like people may know of, but have a lot of undoing of wrong perceptions of what Christianity is about. Um, whereas in, in the early church, they had. They were laying the foundation of the fulfillment of the, for those who were Jews, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And for those who weren't, the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, you know. Um, and so today we do that for some people, but we also, some people have ideas of Christianity, but don't always have the right ideas of it because of maybe a bad picture of that with another Christian or bad experiences or just false beliefs and teaching, you know. And, um, and so... Um, yeah, I think, that's, I think the other encouragement too, along these lines, I was just thinking of this um, in Acts eight four, how the gospel initially spreads outside of Jerusalem, and here's here's the description: those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Um, like it, it doesn't doesn't even tell us. So we we eventually get that Philip was one of the guys uh, that goes about it, uh, goes about sharing. Uh, the gospel, but then in Acts 11 as well, there's uh, there's further pushing out because of persecution. It says in verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Cyrus, uh, as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, and preached the Lord Jesus. And and taking the gospel of the Gentiles. So we don't even know some of the names of these people. The mission of the church carries on often by people we don't know their names, you know? And it's just a reminder that God's using, it's a cliche, he uses a bunch of nobodies to make something of the one somebody, right? Like the ultimate one, you know? And But there's an encouragement in that. Like it's not about your station, your stature, your importance, your significance. God wants to use each of us in this broader work of the mission of a church. And... Uh, our names probably won't ever be recorded, um, but they're recorded if we know Christ in the one place that, that matters, which the book of Revelation takes us to, called the uh, the book of eternal life, the Lamb's book of eternal life. And so um, Acts 6 is the return of the king. Jesus is going to come back um, and restore um, uh, all creation. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And we don't have time to get into all the eschatology stuff. Uh, I joke, you probably heard me say this, I have a, um, I forget the girl's name, I say Twilight Paris, but I think somebody else wrote the song, she has this song, Jesus is coming, people get ready, soon we'll be, soon we'll be going home, um, and, but it's like, people get ready, Jesus is coming, soon we'll be going home. Wow. It's like that, uh, it's beautiful. Um, but I love the simplicity of that, right? Like. Jesus told us he's coming back, and he actually told us the most important thing is that you live ready, that you're ready for his return. Like, don't be caught not ready. Don't be found unfaithful when he returns. And when he comes back, we're going to be home in the eternal lasting sense of in his presence. But all of that to say, the Bible shows us that the message of Revelation is one of triumph. If you read through Revelation, you have the letters to the churches in Revelation 1 through 3. And then, though it can get confusing, and I think there's a lot of symbolism that's there, it's speaking to a reality of God's victory and triumph and his redemption that will be completed. And it ends with Revelation 21 through 22, speaking of a new heavens and a new earth. And so what we see in the Bible is that our future isn't a existence on the clouds with Cupid floating around in a diaper, uh, playing the harp. Um, that's good news. Um, 
but our existence is in a real place, a real space, time, place, uh, a new heavens and a new earth, which God restores what's wrong and broken in this world. And there's so many questions I have about what our work will be and whether we will eat meat and do animals talk and how will all of this play out and you see why C.S. Lewis wrote the books he did as he thought about what all of this could mean, uh, you know, and, um, and, but there's this picture of a real eternal existence with God and a real eternal judgment uh, for those who reject God uh, that plays out and we see it in Revelation 21 through 22. But God's plan is for all of creation to be healed, redeemed, and restored. Um, and, uh, and so his purposes of redemption or are as wide as the curse, as far as the curse is found. Uh, so his redemption reaches uh, today. So just as nothing in creation remained untouched by sin after Edom, so nothing in creation can remain untouched by God's redemption after Christ's victory on the cross. Um, and so uh, we're headed uh, towards a real eternal existence and a new heavens and a new earth in which God's presence uh, will be our full satisfaction and we will live life as he intended us. And, and, and perhaps you could say even in a greater way because it won't just be as he created us to experience life, it will be as he created and redeemed us to experience life. And so, um, so the, the book... The Bible begins in the beginning and it ends at the end and it tells the truth about everything in between. And we find ourselves situated after Jesus' uh, death, resurrection, and ascension, awaiting his return. And so we live out our mission confident that we are in Christ and confident that we will be with him forever, um, is the story uh, line of the Bible. Um, to creation, to fall, to redemption, initiated, Back in Genesis 3.15, and Abraham and David and the New Covenant uh, accomplished through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, carried on through the church, awaiting new creation um, in which the king will, will come back um, and will be with him forever. So um, that's the storyline of the Bible. Um, and it's the story that we find ourselves in and... Um, and it's the one, it's the true story of the whole world, uh, is what uh, N.T. Wright says. And as believers, um, it's an invitation to keep reading it, uh, to read all the parts in light of the whole, and to read the whole in light of the parts, and to uh, press on in our study of God's Word, our uh, discipleship of one another. Like, this is, this is foundational for us as God's people. Um, and... We've spent four weeks looking at it from 30,000 feet, but we could spend uh, 40 weeks um, digging into it and, and only then be scratching the surface. And so um, any, any final questions on any of these things before wrapping up?